0: welcome to a Redemptions Hill podcast for more information about Redemption Hill go to redemptionshill.com Uh, we're going to read from Romans 11. We have a fairly uh, lengthy text uh, today, so I'm going to read that. And, and here's my ask: If you have kind of adult onset ADD, like many of us do, this is a long text, and I'd say in about four verses, you're, you're going to start thinking about lunch. So try and hold with me. Uh, instead, let's read through this, and we'll try and make our way through uh, the text. So Romans 11, Romans 11, chapter or chapter 11, verses. 11 through the end of the book is kind of where we're going to be at uh, today. So this is the word of the Lord. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall by no means? Rather, through the trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more what will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order uh, somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are uh, the branches, verse 17. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is, na- what it is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Hold on, we're almost there. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in the way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by mercy uh, shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on. On all, This is uh, the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you help us. Uh, we just stand before you acknowledging that Romans 11 is difficult and heavy. Uh, Lord, may we see your hand. Uh, may we see redemption unfolding throughout history. May we see uh, the God who has been at work and is at work and will continue to be at work. Lord, I pray that we would be in awe of you. You're a good Father. You have done good. You are good. You are kind and you're drawing people to yourself. I pray uh, that we just step back and see the beauty of you working. I pray that in your name be glorified today. Amen. So uh, I can't exactly hide the cards from you today. Uh, This is one of the most difficult texts in the Bible uh, and definitely the most challenging text in Uh, An already pretty difficult book to understand in places, the book of Romans, but this text isn't difficult because it has controversial subject matter in it. We've been through controversial subject matter in Romans already, but that's not really what's going on here. It's difficult to understand because the subject matter in Romans 11, where we're at today, uh, is a subject of eschatology. Eschatology is really the study uh, of the last thing. So think about the book of Revelation, Uh, Or or maybe, depending on your age, uh, maybe the Left Behind book series, uh, that deals with eschatology. I don't know that I love the way that it deals with it, but that is uh, a form of eschatology. It's studying what's going to happen in the last days. So eschatology focuses on redemption unfolding in history. So there's matters of eschatology that affect us in the here and now. Namely, what are the blessings that we walk in? Because of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. That's an eschatology issue. What, what part of redemption do we get to experience now? And then another matter of eschatology is what are some of the blessings that we don't get now, but we get when Christ returns, when he comes and sets all things back. Because there's things that we get now and there's things that we don't get till later. That's a matter of eschatology. And the other side of eschatology is what will happen leading up to Christ's return. Uh, for ages, people have uh, kind of looked at the times and the culture and the news, and they've tried to forecast when Jesus will return. So when war breaks out, it, you'll always have some guy who's going, that's it, I knew it, Jesus is coming back soon. And, you know, he hasn't so far. Then when a pandemic comes, lots of people, that's it, I knew it, Jesus is coming back r- right now. Here, here we go, get, get ready. Then when the stock market falls, that's it. I knew it. Jesus is coming back, right? You, you get it. When hurricanes come or tsunamis come or the, the election goes to the side that you didn't want it to, that's it. People all along have, have tried to kind of look at the times to diagnose or, or guess or understand when Jesus is coming. Uh, sidebar moment, the, the word tells us nobody knows, like the father only knows. So there's not a whole ton of use in trying to do that, but people have been doing it all along. In Romans 11, the the way that it deals with eschatology specifically is Romans 11 is going to talk about what will happen to Israel, the the nation over the course of redemptive history, what's going to happen to them specifically? What will happen to the nation that God chose to be his people, that he he selected to be his own? What's going to happen to them? Because what we've seen so far in Romans is they look like they're down for the count, And what we're looking at is will there be a redemption story for Israel along the unfolding of the redemptive path that God is weaving out? Will they ever come back from their unbelief? What's going to happen to those guys? That's the what of the text that we find here. What's going to happen to Israel? Then we should also cover. Uh, the, the why? Why is this text? Why are eschatology texts so difficult to understand? And then, furthermore, if they're so difficult to understand, like why are we like trying to understand them? Why are we navigating the waters of them? The, the reason that texts about eschatology are difficult is because they're not precise roadmaps. You're not going to find in Revelation or in Romans 11, okay? Here it is, guys. Uh, this specific thing is going to happen to those specific people on that specific day in this specific geographic location when you see that one thing happen. It, it, it doesn't do that at all. Uh, it, it instead speaks uh, about general directions or endings of things, right? It'll show us, okay, this is what the ending is going to be like, but it doesn't really tell you what the path of navigating to the ending will look like, which leaves people panicking, trying to guess for themselves what's going on and generally when they do that they kind of miss the entire point of the redemption plan of God the other reason the eschatology texts are difficult is the language used in them in Romans 11 and if you've ever kind of dug through revelation it's the same way you're going to have direct information historical information poetry metaphors and symbolism all interwoven together. But the difficulty for us is it doesn't say like, okay, church, this part's symbolism, and this part's poetry, and this part's actual. It, it's just all wove together, and then we have to do our best to understand what is what, which makes it kind of hard to discern as well. Again, this leads us back to why are we covering this if, if it's so difficult? Like, why, like, wouldn't it be easier to just deal with something else? And as I researched this text and how a lot of churches have handled it, uh, a large, large, large number of churches that actually preach through the book of Romans, they just skip 11. And they say, well, it's, it's too hard. It's too difficult to understand. Uh, it, it, it's pretty rough. It's heavy. There's some things that I, I don't know. And, and they just kind of jump over it. We're not going to do that. And hear me, that's not like a humble brag of like, we're the only guys who'll stand strong. I, I don't believe that we're going to cover it because I'm brilliant and we'll do a better job than other people. Uh, the reason that we're just going to stick forward and keep going through is because we believe that every text is useful, even the hard ones. Uh, the word speaks into the word. Uh, the word is the breath of God for the people of God. And it's useful to teach us and build us up and correct us and and lead us. So for that reason, we believe it's valuable even if it is tricky. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll kind of pray Psalm 119 over the text, open our eyes, Lord, that we may behold wondrous things. That's the hope. You're not going to get all this. I studied it all week long. I don't get all of it, if I'm honest. But Father, open our eyes to the beauty of what you're doing. Your hand is moving. May we see the beauty of you. May we see your work and your person and your character and your hand. Even if we just see shadows or imperfect pictures of it, may we see your hand working for your glory, the redemption of your people. And maybe we understand this. God, you have a, a plan. Here's the reality. If you've, you've seen it even, even more, I, I went to a water park Friday with my, my kids. My phone was a, away all day, and all of a sudden I opened up. I was like, oh, the people, they're so angry, right? It, it looks like the world is chaotic right now. The beauty of this text is, in a chaotic world, the Father still has a plan. That's what we want to understand. And he is carrying it out, even in ways that we don't fully understand. And he's carrying it out in a way to seek and save the lost. And the beauty is, he wants to seek and save more lost. And we get to be a part of that beauty unfolding. So that's a hope. God, open our eyes. Let us see the beauty So last week, um, the chapter opened, and we just covered the first 10 verses last week, and then we're covering that big chunk this week. As the text opened, Paul asked the rhetorical question, did God completely give up on, or or did he get upset and completely reject Israel? Basically, did God say, forget you, uh, you don't deserve me, and you're out? Did he go back on his word and decide, I'm going to reject all of you and forever because I can't stand what you have done? And Paul answers the question quickly and emphatically by, by no means. He's not rejected all of Israel, and he uses his own life and other things to give it examples of that. He says, even though things are dark and times are difficult, even though Israel, the, the, the nation of Israel, had stumbled over Jesus, even though as if th- it seems as if things are really, really bad, God will not reject them. And Paul shows that God will never reject those who are his own. No matter how dark days get, he will not abandon his own. This is really good news for your heart because you and I will have good days and we'll have some pretty rough days too. The beauty that God will not abandon us even on our rough days is encouragement to the heart who's honest enough to realize like you're down days. The encouraging part that Paul laid before us too is the concept of a remnant. Even when it looks like nobody is left, that's why he referenced Elijah, when it looks like everyone's fallen away and there's, just, there's nobody who's following Jesus in the culture, God by his hand will keep a remnant Who's faithful to himself. We don't have to worry ever, is it over? Did, did God lose? This? this is his message. God will always keep a remnant. God's plans will never fail, even if it looks like chaos in the world. This week, Paul asks a similar question to the first, but he asks it for, from a little bit of a different angle. And, and there's a reason that he does this. Uh, he he asks this time, is Israel too far gone? Are they unable to be redeemed, right? Is the train too far down the tracks? Is, is it moving too fast? that there's, there's no way to turn it around. He, here's the difference. Before he said, God, did you say forget you and reject Israel? Now he's asking, are they so lost that they'll never turn back? Are they beyond saving? The first question focused on God's perspective. Did, did you cast them away? The second focuses on Israel's situation. Are they too far gone? He asks the question this way. He says, did they stumble in order that they may fall? They, 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 They stumble in order that they're going to fall on their face. My kids love to watch America's funniest videos, right? We DVR that thing and we watch it a lot. I don't know why from a young age, uh, maybe just the dryer house is is messed up, but we love to watch the show for two primary reasons. The first is to watch people get hit in the parts. My boys think it's hilarious every time. I think it's hilarious too. If you don't, I don't know, man, it's funny. Uh, and, And the second part, the reason that we watch it is to watch people epically fall. It's the favorite part of the story. But when people fall on the show, here's what you get. They're normally going to have this epic stumble, whether they're trying to walk on ice, like, oh, this is going to go bad, and they're like, their feet start going, or, or some goofball decides that he's going to jump in a pool. You know that's never going to go good. And what you're going to see is you're going to see this epic stumble that, that comes about. And as soon as you see the stumble, you're like, here it is. Here it is. Because you know the stumble leads to the fall, a hilarious and epic fall. Paul's playing off of this idea. We expect the fall afterwards. So he asks, is the ultimate fall of Israel inevitable? Right? Is the unbelief of Israel, the stumble that is the precursor to their fall, are they too far gone to save? Is it over? And We can't miss the, the brilliance of the depth of his words here. They're extremely important. This is one of the biggest parts out of the text. Jesus was the stumbling block. Right, we, we see this in the Old Testament and the New. He is literally what tripped up Israel from following God. They rejected the idea of a Messiah coming to stand in their place. So while Jesus was to be the cornerstone, the foundation of God's plan of redemption, he's actually the, the rock that tripped up Israel. They got caught up on him, though He is actually the foundation of all things. This means Paul is asking, not only is Israel as a nation too far gone, He's asking, is the stumbling over Jesus for them going to last forever? Because Jesus is the only way not to fall. And hear me, there's times we hear words and you're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Jesus is the only way not to stumble and fall. He's the only way to redemption. Paul again says, by no means. The stumble wasn't so that they would fall they're not too far gone, which is which is huge. He also tells us something else that we cannot miss in verse 11. He says, through Israel's trespass, the, the nation of Israel, through their stumbling over Jesus, salvation came to the Gentiles through that, which is very interesting that means all of a sudden this thing that Paul is lamenting, that he's weeping over, that he's hurting over, God is is using all of that to do something really good. The sin of a nation, the rejection of Jesus, the unbelief, Paul just told us God used that sin to bring salvation to a whole other group of people. God brings something beautiful out of the sinfulness of his chosen people. Now, Again, sidebar, we will never bank on our sin. Well, God's still going to use this. No, bad idea. But God can use broken and horrible things to do really beautiful things. That's the beauty of his hand over all things. He uses the trespass of Israel to bring in Gentiles. And let's explain that again a little bit. Remember, God has chosen Israel long ago. Why is it a big deal that their stumble led to to the Gentiles receiving salvation? In Israel, the Gentiles were the ones that the covenants were made to, the promises were made to. They were given the presence of God. So it appears that salvation was for them and to them and reserved only for their camp. Now, you could, in some ways in their cultures, you could um, take on Israel. You could convert into uh, Israel and, and, and through that possibly come into the to the faith. But here's the reality. If only Israelites can come to faith, Not very many people are going to. That keeps out a mass majority of the world. So if a whole group, every other Gentile, would have to abandon their heritage to come to Jesus, the reality is not a lot of people are going to come. So again, why is this important? You and I, and and I I think we're probably batting 100% here, none of us are Jews. We're all Gentiles, every one of us here. We stand, therefore, outside of the promises of God, outside of his blessing. And back then, it would be believed if we were Gentiles that we were dirty, that we were dogs, that we are unredeemable, that we are too far gone, that God has no purpose for us or anything like that, that we were rejected. Paul says Israel's unbelief is actually what let salvation come to us. Now you, know, you have to think, well, how did it actually come to you? We'll weave the line. But this is impactful. People outside of Israel, the only way that they have come to faith is through what happens here, through Israel rejecting God. The salvation and the gospel wouldn't spread to us. If Israel would not have rejected Jesus at the time. And now again, this is the broad idea of eschatology. We're looking at how God's plan of redemption unfolds over the course of history. And Paul is kind of pulling back the curtain so we can see God's hand. Israel's unbelief was used in order to grab a hold of Gentiles like us. If your faith is in Jesus, what the, the people of Israel did then led to where you are now. The rejection of Jesus back then is a factor that lets us stand here now. Again, this is the thread that we are weaving. Now, natural question, how? I get what you're saying. That led to us here. How in the world did that lead to us here? Because I'm having a hard time connecting the, the dots to that. Well, the pattern that you see through the book of Acts, this is the early church history book, the massive spread of Christianity happened in uh, this book and continues on. But what we see over and over and over in the book is Paul or Timothy or Silas, whoever's preaching, they're going to go into a city and they're going to do this. Their first stop is to go preach in the temple every time. Why? Because they were called to preach to the, the Jews first. But each time that they would go into, like arrive at the city, where's the temple? I'm going to preach there. They'd go to preach there every time. They'd go preach the gospel. They'd preach faith through Jesus, reconciliation through Jesus, and, and Israel, the, the Jewish people, would chase them out and reject them. Sometimes it says maybe, maybe one or a few would believe, but the masses would chase them out. They would reject the gospel. They would hate the message. They would chase them out. And so what do they do next? Go into a city. All right, God, you called me to profess Jesus. Go into the temple. Everyone hates them, sends them out. What do we do now? Well, then they went to the where the Gentiles were. The Gentiles, when they gave the message, the same message that the Israelite rejected, they began to come to faith in droves. Many of them put their faith in Jesus. The, the, the gospel would go to the Jews first. They would hate it and reject it. And then it would go to the Gentiles, and many of them would gladly accept it. Now, if when they entered the cities... And preach to the Jews in the temple. Follow me again. We're asking, how in the world did Israel's rejection of Jesus lead to our acceptance of Jesus? How, how, how did this happen? If they would have gone in Acts, and, and in each time they went to the city, and they, and they went to the temple, and they preached Jesus, and at that moment all of them repented and received Jesus right then and right there, then most likely it would have reinforced the idea. See, I knew this was just Israel's thing and not ours. And they would continue to preach there. And they would continue to, to share the, the, the news of Jesus there. And because they would have such traction in those spot, they would ev- never actually get rejected and go outside and make it to the Gentiles. They would have been too busy with Israel. Paul's point is if the rejection of Jesus didn't happen. The preaching to the Gentiles wouldn't have happened either. It is through the trespasses of Israel that people outside of Israel were shared the message of Jesus. This is what he means that through their trespasses, salvation came to the Gentiles. Now back up even further, Paul is saying not only is Israel not too far gone for saving, um, God used what many lamented to bring salvation to other people. And further, God isn't done yet. He he used their, their moment of trespass and stumbling to bring the Gentiles in, but he's not done yet. He's going to then use the salvation of the Gentiles to make Israel jealous and make some of them come back to God to save them as well. If we back up, we're going, I think this is the only way he could get both of them. Verse 13, Paul further explains this. He wants his ministry to the Gentiles to bring about such beauty and fruit that it attracts some of Israel back into belief. He, he wants such joy and peace and and beauty of community and blessing that the Gentiles are living in through their faith in Jesus to cause this gospel jealousy and envy to well up in Israel that drives them back to the Jesus that they formerly rejected. Now this seems weird because James calls jealousy demonic and yet Paul is like hoping for it. John Stott says this, and I I think it's hopeful. At its base, envy is the desire to have for oneself Something possessed by another. Okay, we get that. And whether envy is good or evil depends on the nature of the something desired and on whether one has the right to possess it. If that something is in itself evil, or if it belongs to someone else and we have no right to it, then the envy is sinful. That's not yours. It's wrong. But if the something desired is in and of itself good, a blessing from God, which he means all his people to enjoy, then to covet it, and envy those who have it is not at all unworthy. This kind of desire is right in itself, and to arouse it can be a realistic, a realistic motive in ministry. Here's this point back then, and the point for us to see. Gospel envy is a beautiful thing. It's a great thing. This is not a boasting This is a without you presenting it to make people jealous, but people actually seeing it, they're drawn to the Savior. This is what we hope to cause in the world around us. This is what we want to be praying for, for our neighbor to the left and to to our right, and and our coworkers, even if you're remote. This is what we want to happen in them. We want people to see Jesus so beautifully change us, so radically make us different than the world and more like him. We want the way that we serve each other and, and love each other and care for each other to be so beautiful and compelling that people say, man, I, I, I want that. Which then gives the opportunity for them to turn to Jesus personally because when people start to desire that, here's what our, our place should be. Right? When people are like, man, your, your, your life and your motives, you're not supposed to be like, yeah, I'm awesome, I got it. You're supposed to go, Jesus did that. It is Christ, and Christ alone, the old man has died and brought apart new life in me. It is the beauty of what Jesus has done that's a seed, that's the only thing that led to any of this. The, the envy is meant to draw people to the person of Christ and then let them enjoy the beauty that they were first drawn into when they begin to follow Christ. This was God's plan then to use Israel's unbelief to save many Gentiles and then to use the Gentiles' faith to entice Israel back into believing. We just step back and watch how God works. It's a pretty massive and beautiful plan to bring in outsiders into the fold and to bring some of Israel back as well. God plans to use the beauty of of faith and the blessings of faith to ultimately lure other people back to himself. We need to be careful because there are, there are lines that take it too far. I preach the gospel and if necessary, use words as a trash line. But still understand that there should be something noticed about our life that then leads to the ability to use words. God uses beautifully transformed faith and lives and hope. Hear this one. People seeing that your hope is different than theirs in a world that's chaos and outrageous will probably be the biggest thing that draws people to Jesus. The transformed beauty of that and and a biblical community, he uses this to draw people to himself. This is what he's been doing since Jesus came. This poses the question, and again, I'll front load it, not out of of duty, but really out of relevance to us. Are our lives ones that cause gospel envy? If someone looks through the window of our lives, is there anything that they could see Jesus through? Again, I'm not trying to ask you to work harder and do more. The bigger way to look at this is, is the seeds of the gospel, are you marinating on that enough to let him change you to where people see the Savior through the way you're living? Is there something different about us, about our character, about our lives, about the way that we serve each other? Is there a peace and gentleness here? This is, again, probably the largest one. Is there a peace and gentleness about us that no one sees in an anxious and hostile world that makes it go, how do you do that when there's so much chaos around you? Is there something beautiful that points to him? Or, Do we look like a slightly more polished or moral version of just everyone else? Again, this is not a statement of elitism. At the foundation, of the gospel transforms us into new creations of the beauty of Christ. Do we look no different to where no gospel envy can be born? Think of the way that we operate as church, even in membership. Regular rhythm should, should cause questions. Why do you give money to a church. You can have another car. Like, why do you do that? Why do you show up regularly when, I mean, like, Sunday fun day? Why do you serve in kids' class when you don't get paid for it? Why do you set up speakers? Why do you have hope in a world that seems hopeless? Why are you patient in a world that values anger and outrage? Why do you pray for one another? Why do you pray at all? Why do you bear one another's burdens? Why do you show mercy and kindness and and love and patience? Why do you not freak out on everyone like everyone else does? See, all of these things are things that the gospel compels and commands us to do. But they're also the things that create gospel envy in a world that we live in that desperately needs to see the beauty of Jesus. I've said it a lot lately, especially in our uh, last year in our vision series and even through Romans, my hope for us is that we would become brave in Christ in a world that's scared, that we would live out our faith, not arrogantly, but courageously. There's a difference between being arrogant about living out, but also not being scared to live it out in, in a clear picture to the ones who are around us. The hope is for bravery and courage in a world that would think that we were fools for following Christ. Why? Because it's what we're called to do in Jesus. Because some might come to know Jesus through it. And we cannot look like the world and show them the Christ who is the king of the world. You cannot be a light on a hill if you look like the darkness in the valley. This is what we're called to. This is what mission looks like. And even outside of the reasons of this is what we're called to and this is how mission works, here's the other outlier. It's just better. To, to live in the peace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, to continually have the card, corner, or corners of your heart die and find life in Jesus, nothing is being stolen from you. You're being given peace and you're given hope and you're given mercy and you're given worship. This is where really the the, the scripture's about come to me, everyone who is heavy laden. When we do that, that's where mercy is and you're never gonna regret that. Will it be easy to walk in Jesus in a world that is dark? Absolutely not. I don't think you're gonna regret it though. The fruit of the spirit, patience, peace, kindness, joy, self-control, I don't think you get to your deathbed and go, man, I really hate that I had those. really hate that Jesus did that. That's lame. I could have done other stuff. I could have been angry. I could have been an influencer. Verse 12, or verses 17 through 24. Paul then shifts the focus lightly. Uh, there are those who could think that, okay, the, the Jewish people killed Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They're messing everything up. They're just Pharisees. They're just legalistic. And, and, and you know what? Forget them. My God may not have rejected them, but I reject them. Those guys are idiots. They are the problem. We are now God's chosen people. We're the new Israel, not actually the people of Israel. It's just us. This is called replacement theology, which Paul is not fond of. Yes, the beauty is that Gentiles are grafted in, but the grafting in of Gentiles does not then push the Jews out. The whole section uses a metaphor of an olive tree, which is for Israel or God's people. Paul says some branches of the tree, uh, some people uh, from Israel became unbelieving people, and as unbelieving branches, they were broken off from it. And then Gentiles, wild olive shoots, they're not the olive tree, they're they're like these wild uh, weeds, they're brought in and they're grafted in the place of the branches that were broken off. To where... Wild olive shoots, Gentiles, can be nourished by the blessings of God through the olive tree. This is to say God grafted Gentiles into his family to receive the blessings of God. Paul says Gentiles, do not be arrogant towards the branches. There, there, there's a, a classic line that maybe you've heard, do not be a Pharisee to the Pharisee. Do not be arrogant towards Israel. Realize it is on their shoulders that you stand. It is on the shoulders of the patriarchs that you stand. You're being blessed from their root. It is not the other way around. So do not get proud and boast, and do not fall into unbelief yourself. The hope as Gentiles who are grafted in is God, let us show Israel the beauty of what you've done and say, we have found hope in your Savior. Would you find hope in him too? Not, you guys ruin it all, forget you. Paul says, Gentiles, don't be arrogant. Do not get proud and boast. And then he says this, don't fall into unbelief yourself as well. His point at the end of the section is pretty heavy. If you read through it slowly, you'll you'll catch it. He says, if God would cut off branches, right? Unbelieving Israel, his chosen people. If unbelieving Israel, if he would not let them have a pass, and cast them away for their rejection of Jesus, for their unbelief, if he would do that to his chosen people, then then don't think he won't do it to the wild olive shoots. He's not threatening to revoke salvation. He's showing that God is consistent in the same. He's saying Israel began to assume their blessings of salvation. They assumed that because of their Jewish heritage that, that they were saved. And they assumed that, that through their Israelite heritage, they were, were fine, and, and they rejected Jesus, and they rested on their heritage and their ancestry to save them. Paul says this is a point of danger, assuming salvation without accepting Jesus. In a stark warning, he says Gentiles don't make the same mistake. They rejected Jesus. Be careful that you don't do the same. Don't assume on a parent's faith or a grandparent's faith or a friend's faith or someone in your MC's faith. Do not presume on their faith. Do not assume because you grew up in church or because you vote a certain way or because you you view life through a certain lens. Do not begin to assume that you are a Christian. The only way to be a Christian is through Christ. You personally have to have a personal Savior that is Christ. This is the point. Many people believe that there needed to be nothing personal for them about Jesus to be saved. And he goes, no, you have to trust in the Messiah. To not fear the Lord is to forget like Israel that we too need Jesus. There's a double warning then about arrogance in the text. Don't be arrogant towards the Jews. Jesus came for them after all. And don't be arrogant like the broken off branches who thought that they could get away without the Messiah and be fine if they doubled down on obedience. As the text moves forward, it discusses the mystery of salvation. Then we're getting ready to kind of land the plane. The mystery here doesn't mean what we think of as mystery. As they use this word in the original language, this word for mystery is the idea of something that, that used to be hidden, but now it's not. Now it's been revealed. Now it's been made clear. Uh, Others relate to this mystery here as the boomerang of salvation throughout history. What's the mystery? God works in a way that you did not expect. Through the rejection of salvation of Israel, it would lead to the salvation of those in the Gentile clans. And then after their rejection, it's gonna work itself back to Israel again as they become envious of the beauty that God is doing in the Gentiles. This is the the mystery that we see now. This is God's unfolding plan over history. And the beauty is also, hey, God's gonna do this in a way that you could have never imagined. And also God is gonna do this for his ability to save people from every tribe, which sends Paul into worship. Because you have to imagine, Israel back then is going, It's all over. It's blown up. Like there's, there's no way that God can redeem this. And goes, no, no. God's going. I'm using what you did there to save them, and then their faith is actually going to lead to entice you back in as well. I've I've got a plan. Paul goes into worship through this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. I can see as he's unfolding this. Man, the depth of your plan and your wisdom. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Like we could, we could have never seen that coming. Who's been his counselor? Like who, who, who did he go to for advice? Paul's going, he doesn't go to anybody. He's got a good plan. Who's given him a gift that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. The centrality of God in all. To him be glory forever, amen. Paul writing this out and sharing how God is moving things around in history. How God would operate above and over ways that we can comprehend to save. To bring people from both Jew and Gentile into his family. How God will elect and he will call and he will save and he will keep people for himself who truly would be from every tribe and tongue who will confess Jesus. This reality sends an eruption of worship. How did you do that? This is amazing. You are above all things. So we stand over God many times trying to go like, I would have done this better. And Paul puts himself under God going, "I, I can't comprehend the way that you're doing things. Man, I could have never pictured that you were good. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge, your ways, your plans, your judgments. And they're unsearchable. I can't figure them out. It's over my head. It's over your head. There's a part of humility that says, man, I I trust you. So though we're not going to be able to figure it all out, though we're not going to be able to see everything that he's doing, what we can know through 11 is that God's hand is moving to bring about redemption. Right, he's moving to save. All things are from him and through him and to him. The whole world is yours, God. As we see God moving and saving throughout history, Paul goes, Man, I, I confess and worship that you are good. The whole world is yours. I trust you. You're saving people in ways that I could have never imagined. And you're worthy of glory and honor and praise because of it. I trust you. The hope for us in this text is that we would see even in part, that God is working now. God will be at work even after we are gone. He has done so much. He has moved around so much. He's worthy of your worship and worthy of your praise. The reality that Paul is wanting us to see is God made a way where there used to be no way, He made a way where it seemed unimaginable to bring people in. He made a way for people of countless races to come to him through his son. He is the creator, restoring people to himself, one broken heart at a time, and he's worthy of worship to it. The other hope is that we cling tight to the message of Jesus. If God would not allow Israel to be saved without accepting Jesus, then we can be rest assured that he will not allow others either. Which, what does this do for us? And my hope is I just try to lay out the cards the whole time. The goal is not crushing duty, but we are called to something. And that's what you're going to see over the chapter 12 coming. The hope is this would give a weight to the way that we pay attention to our evangelism and our witness. How you live matters, that you're not supposed to skate in by the skin of your teeth into glory. You're supposed to proclaim the beauty of what Jesus has done and invite others to come with you. The unfolding of your life matters. The way you speak to others matter. The way people see you, not because you want them to think highly of yourself matters, but the the reality that people see Jesus through your life is a really big deal. In our world that declares, it gets to make the rules Romans 11 stands firm and says, Jesus is still always the only way of salvation, no matter how loud anyone yells. The beauty of that, even though he's the only way, he is available to the Jew first, and then praise God to the Gentile as well. That is our message of hope. The message that Paul wants us to leave with as well is every blessing you have ever received has been given from God. He cares for you. He loves you, he's called you, he's adopted you, He has shown you the beauty of his son. The hope is that you would receive it. Jesus is the only way and God is still working through a redemptive plan. Man, you guys can come back up. We're gonna take communion today in worship and as we do, the, the cups are at the entry of um, a couple of you who are uh, first-time visitors. I'm glad that you're here. You don't have to be a member to take communion with us. The only ask is that your faith be placed in in Jesus. But 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." There are many times that we take and we examine our own lives and our own hearts and, and what's happening in us. And, and that's a good motive because the Bible talks clearly over and over, do not take in an unworthy manner. So the hope is that you would be able to, to take and, and realize that the broken body and blood of Jesus means something for you, that you can lay down your work because he has done a good work for you And that even when you don't feel clean, if your faith is in Jesus, you are clean. That's a beauty that you get to celebrate. But what we need to understand is we need to step back as well. And as we take, we need to remember the redemptive hand of God. He's saving a people. And that means something to you. You're clean in Christ if your faith is in him. But he's drawing people from every corner of the world into himself. God will not let him go. Even in a world that seems chaotic, Jesus wins. God has a plan. One day we'll be at a banquet table celebrating the reality of what God has done, going, man, that was a crazy ride, and you were good, and you were kind. So as we take today, man, I I hope that your heart is encouraged. God's at work. He's doing something good. Maybe we begin to dream again. Now, what would it be like to see his hand move more? And, man, his hand was moving when I, I, man, I, I thought all was lost then. I thought surely he couldn't have brought good out of that. His hand's been moving the entire time. God, thank you for your redemptive plan. God, let us walk boldly and see it unfold more. Use us. Let us worship you. Let us find our strength in you. And let us see the beauty of what you're doing. It matches really with the Lord's prayers. I was thinking about it this morning. As we take today, we could say, even in our taking, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You have a redemptive plan. May it come about. May we see it. May we see your hand move. Not for our glory, but the glory of your Son. I hope that you take and be encouraged.